0: Any of us who've been in it for long enough, our entire career has been littered with jobs that we didn't get, projects that we thought were gonna go for sure, dozens of unproduced
1: scripts littering the floor. All of us are running into both major and minor failures in Hollywood every single day.
0: For every success, there is months, sometimes even years of painful failure. This is one of the only businesses I can think of where failure is the default. That's the norm. You have to be able to persevere.
1: Like everything in our business, your hands get calloused. It all bounces off you. Uh, you know that process takes years. That doesn't happen overnight. I was being told by my manager,
0: it's yours to lose. And I promptly lost it. (laughs) And I remember thinking like, well, that's it for me. I blew my one big shot. What I've realized from that moment is it's never one big shot. There will be other shots. Welcome to Screaming Into the Hollywood Abyss, a podcast about rejection, failure, and adversity in the entertainment industry. I am your non-entertainment rejected in other ways host, Dan Rutstein, and joined as ever from Hawaii by Noah Eveslin. Uh, Thank you,
1: Dan. I know I always say this, that I'm super excited for the next guest to be on, but I really am super excited to speak to this person who's sitting across from us or virtually sitting across from us. It's David Goodman. Uh, He's been working in the industry as a comedy writer since all the way back in the 80s, where he started, it seems like he started as a story editor on the Golden Girls. His career might even go further back than that. He's been on a ton of shows, which I'm going to skip through because there's just, it would take us all hour to list them. But he's been on things such as Wings, Stark Raving Mad, Futurama, Star Trek, Enterprise, American Dad, Family Guy, and most recently, he's been on the Orville Bless the heart, plus a new Star Wars series that hasn't even been released yet. And of course, he is our beloved president of the WGA. Welcome, David.
2: Thank you. Thank you for not going all the way back and letting Mm. people know exactly how old I am. I actually started as a staff writer on the Golden Girls. You don't get, you often don't get that credit. You don't get that screen credit, but sometimes. So I'm, I'm going
0: to go first, and I'm going to ask you a question about comedy writing. So, we had an actress uh, on a few episodes ago who told us that being rejected after you've done a scene where you have to show some level of vulnerability is harder because they're sort of judging your emotions. So, obviously, if you've written a clever fantasy or a clever drama, that's one thing. But when you when you're doing comedy, if you're basic, if you're rejected because they're basically saying to you, hey, funny guy, you're not actually funny enough for us or you're the wrong sort of funny. Is it a harder type of
2: rejection when it's not funny, as it were? Well, I I think not being funny when you're trying to be funny is the most humiliating. Uh, Maybe that's just my own experience. But when you're in a writer's room, for instance, and you pitch a joke and no one laughs, uh, that is... That is uh, one of the most cringeworthy, humiliating experiences, and comedy writers go through it every day, several times a day. And uh, you want to just crawl back into your uh, emotional shell and never come out. But if you if you do that, then you'll never work. So you're 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 constantly, uh, minute to minute, as a someone who writes comedy, facing humiliation and rejection because the the last thing you pitch is the last thing you remember pitching. You don't remember the great joke you pitched last week. You remember the terrible joke you pitched five minutes ago. And uh and that stays in stays in your head until you get the next laugh.
0: So when you're when you're in a, a room and obviously I've not been in a room nor will I ever be unless I have a very drastic change of career. When you, you know, you're, you're working on something, you pitch a joke or pitch a, a comedy idea and, it, and, you know, it does genuinely fall flat. Do you like go, well, here's three more and just sort of hope or do you sort of, you have to sit in it until it's your turn again, like the next
2: week or the next day? I, I think that every writer has a different way of dealing with that. Um, there are writers who fight for the joke, which is always a bad idea. And then, uh, there are writers who do what you just said, just keep pitching, keep pitching, just don't remember that last terrible thing I said. Uh, I have my own uh, way of dealing with it, which is when I pitch a joke that dies, I then explain it uh, and it becomes, up, up, I'm doing a bit of, oh, see, you, you didn't understand the joke. Let me explain it to you, which is also, I'm not being serious, but I'm also trying trying to cover my humiliation by Oh no! Let me explain the joke to you, and then everybody laughs that I'm I'm explained. So they're at least laughing at that. Um, if they're not laughing at the joke, I just pitched.
1: do. Do you think? I mean, in the course of being in these rooms for this long, I've only been in a drama room, so I I only can say it from you know my side of things. Where I mean, this this business can be really hard, and rooms can be the best place in the world, and they can be some of the hardest jobs you've ever had. Uh, and we always hear that comedy is a lot harder. <laughs> like whatever we're doing in the room, comedy rooms are a lot harder. There's a lot more pressure in the room. H- has things changed over the you know the course of your career for the better in a room? Like has the room experience uh, you know differed at all between now and and when you started? You know on the Golden Girls?
2: No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, rooms rooms are about who's who's running the room, and so if you have a a, a showrunner who is sensitive and who understands that who remembers what it's like to be in a room and is respectful of time and encouraging of things they like and not dismissive and not cruel. Uh, that's going to be a good room. Um uh, You know, if your room with a, if you're in a room full of mean people, uh, it's a, it's, you know, it's, it is what it is. I mean, I, a lot of mean rooms. I uh, So, no, I, I think it's really about who's in charge. Uh, I think drama rooms are hard because I've been in a few now and not, not nearly obviously as many as I've been in comedy rooms. And it's harder in a drama room to prove you're worthwhile. Like if you're in a comedy room and obviously pitching good story and pitching, you know, funny things, you know, But if you can just pitch a joke that makes everyone laugh, you can feel like, all right, they're not going to fire me. Uh, If you're in a drama room, it's like, it's harder, I think, as a drama writer in that room, sometimes to plant your flag and say, even in your mind, that's mine. Um, I contributed that. You don't know what the showrunner is thinking a lot of the time and, so I, whereas if you can make the showrunner in a comedy room, if you have made the showrunner laugh, it's like okay, he doesn't hate me because if he hated me, he wouldn't laugh at anything I said. Uh, that's not always true. I've made showrunners who hated me laugh. Uh, so, but but um, but it, it, at least it calms you down. It feels like you can. There's a short-term goal of, of let's make everybody laugh. Whereas in drama rooms, I think it can be harder. So all all comedy
0: rooms. Fun and are comedy writers funny? Now, I don't mean funny. Obviously, they're funny when they make the, the the product, as it were. But sort of when you finish pitching jokes, is everyone also fun and funny at lunchtime and on the way home, or is everyone sort of miserable and they're saving their jokes for when it's their turn?
2: Right. I, I for me, I I find uh, you know, uh, you know. I, my 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 children will say will ask will ask when their when their friends find out what I do for a living uh, they they will ask is your dad funny and uh, I always tell tell them tell them I'm funny on the page um, uh, I think there are really funny people who are not funny writers I think there are really funny writers who are not funny people and then there are funny writers who are funny people. Um I think uh you know, it's like any workplace so for instance so for instance, family guy, I was talking about mean rooms family guy was a very mean room uh I'm very close to those writers I've worked with them for so long, but they don't let you get away with anything. do not wear a hat into the family guy writer's room you'll they'll be making fun of the hat for the you know, on a baseball cap you'd be okay, but uh, any other hat. Uh, a, a writer wore a train engineer hat once, not ironically, and I think they're still talking about it. Um, you know, so it's uh, it's it's uh, you know they're, they're going to make fun of a shirt, a sweater, um, new cla- new glasses, a haircut. Uh, you know that it's 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 and it feeds that show. It shows Family Guy the kind of comedy that it is. A lot of it is very mean purposefully so that the meanness of the room creatively fed that show I think um uh so but these people are the funniest people among the funniest people I've ever met um uh the Futurama writers room by by contrast was not a mean room uh it was however the the smartest room I'd ever been in everybody in there had a advanced degree in something uh and so I was very intimidated by just the education of everybody in that room, and that also fed that show. That was a really smart show. Um, again, uh, everybody in that room was funny, uh, uh, but there was also very interesting conversations in that room. Uh, there was an episode where where Bender had a Bender the robot had to jump into uh, a pool of lava, and then there was a you know a couple minute discussion of. What would he have to be made out of to survive the temperature of lava? And I'm not sure any of that mattered to the comedy of the scene, but these writers wanted to know this was possible. It's a cartoon. Um, you know, uh, so that that's, uh, you know, every room is different. Every All those people are different. I think it, it's all about individuals. There are some people you want to hang around with, some people you don't. <laughs> I
1: think there are. I think there's a general misunderstanding out there about how difficult it is to be a comedy writer just in, in regards to craft, right? We comedy feel when done right, comedy feels really easy and really effortless on the screen and people are laughing and when I moved to Hollywood uh over a decade ago, 13 years ago, I was like, "Oh, I think I'm going to try to be a comedy writer. I'm funny. I make my mom laugh sometimes at the dinner table. That's got to be enough to like, you know." And I began to write a couple early comedies and I wasn't that funny. It's much harder to be funny on the page. I wasn't as funny as I thought I was. And I realized, wait, I can write one joke, an episode and be a drama writer versus writing many jokes, a page and be a comedy writer. I'm going to make and in comedies, you still have to have heart and you still have to have soul and you have to have have character. In fact, they're often way more character first than many of the shows that I've, I've worked on. But I have a question again about sort of the changing landscape of, of Hollywood, which is, uh, you know, there's been you know comedy comedians have complained about this as well that you know there's, there's with social media and other things a uh, comedic misstep could 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 sink you. And do you guys have to sometimes now in a way you didn't before think about your audience, think about the words they're saying, and think about the ripple effect of these words on on your audience?
2: There's no question that's changed. There's no question that uh in a good way. I think that that in sense in some ways and sensitive humor, humor based on uh, racism, sexism, uh, you know, is not, is, is uh, not something people are going to get away with in the same way that they used to. So it makes it harder because I think that um, comedy writers, uh, you know, fell back on their own, uh, you know, their own points of view of things. And if they were in a group of, of other white men you would end up doing things that uh other groups might find offensive but because your your writer's room was all white and all male there was nobody in that room who was who who had the experience of being offended um so i i do think that that's that change it does make it does make comedy harder however i've heard stand-up comedians have a lot more trouble going to uh, colleges uh because of because of um Perceived slights, things that were not necessarily um, based on those things, but are interpreted that way. Uh, So it's it's tough. It's much. It is much harder. Yeah.
1: Do you guys? Is there ever any oversight? For instance, when we're depending on what show I'm on medical procedural whatever we turn in our scripts and we have the studio give us back notes and then the, stu- then there's the BSNP which gives us standards and practices which say you can't say this or you can't do this or you can't show this or whatever obviously you're familiar with that right. do you ever
2: get you can't make this joke um well you know there are sometimes uh there are sometimes yes where so probably my favorite example was um the uh, the uh, 100th episode, I think it was the 100th episode of Family Guy. Um, we had a very big table read, and the um, 200. I actually, I don't remember. But we the night before, um, a writer came up with a, a joke in the writers' room. We were replacing a gag. We have these we have these cutaway gags, and um, this is a gag based on an incident that happened uh, at the time uh, involving a uh, football player named Pat Tillman who went to fight in Afghanistan and was killed. So the gag that the writer pitched, very offensive gag, the writer pitches it's around 11 o'clock at night, he pitches this gag of Peter, it's a cutaway of, this was worse than when I was served in Afghanistan. And Peter is, Getting, is a soldier and he's getting uh, instructions from his commanding officer, okay, when the Taliban comes over the hill, you shoot the Taliban. And Peter says, okay, when Pat Tillman comes over the hill, I shoot Pat Tillman. Because Pat Tillman was also killed in a friendly fire accident. It was a very offensive joke, but it had the entire writer's room laughing hard and, and it was a very funny gag. We're, we have then a half-hour discussion in the room, is this too much? But it's getting late and we have the table read the next day and everybody's coming to the table read it's going to be a big event Head of the network all these things and seth mcfarland decides let's put it in let's see what happens so we put it in and um read the table got a giant laugh at the table just a, a giant laugh but one of the writers said he was looking at the president of the network who was there with his wife and that when they, Pat Tillman gag got the, the, the president network, eyes went wide and he looked at his wife, who's also like shaking her head, and he told us, cut the gag. So that wasn't standards and practices, that was personal taste. And um, the gag did not appear on Fox when it aired, but it did, uh, I think it's in the syndicated version and it's definitely on the DVD. Um, but it did not air up. So that's an example. The personal taste of your network executives, and he's in charge, and he gets to make that call. You know.
0: it, I mean, obviously, I'm not in the industry, but bringing, bringing your spouse along when you're a network executive doesn't feel like a great thing to do for a comedy thing. You know, whether it's the wife or a husband, doesn't matter, but just, it seems like an... Well, the
2: celebration, there was a ter- milestone in the, you know, you bring your... your significant other you get they get to meet the actors you know And, and you know the problem with family guy is that it half half of it is about offending people the package is clearly
0: labeled so look normally on this podcast noah sits in in the seat and says to the guest you're the most amazing person this film you made or the tv show is the best ever and i get a bit bored by that because this isn't what you know we're not meant to be fanboying our guests plus you know, I don't think you need to hear that sort of thing. However, I'm going to just do this briefly because I don't normally get to do this. I'm an enormous fan of Family Guy and, and Orville particularly. So I'm going to... I have a question, though. As a writer, presumably writing comedy where it's either a cartoon, or I think you have to call it animated series, but I'm going to call it a cartoon because I'm not in the industry, or set in space where the aliens can basically be anything you want. Right. Does that make it easier? Because like the cutaway scenes in Family Guy are genius, but because you can literally do anything you want uh, and there's no limits. And even in the space one, you know, you can pick an alien of a certain size or shape to therefore fit the gag. Is that all a lot easier to be funny than Golden Girls or, you know, a normal show that's set with normal Humans in a one physical space, or is it harder because the limits are anything? If you don't make it really funny, you've wasted that opportunity. Well, Dan, do you think it's easier? <laughs> I'd like to think if I was a writer, I'd find it easier.
2: Yeah, it's not. Okay. You know, anything good is hard. Uh, uh, I mean, if if it's bad, then yeah, it was probably easy. Uh, but that's the, uh, you know, that that's the, the sort of the. The uh, you know it was funny. I was thinking no about what you said earlier about being a comedy writer and, and sort of recognizing you weren't funny or 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 that you if this is you weren't funny enough. Uh, I, I you know I, I'm not judging that, but I do what I do say to all writers is your work has to make you make you laugh. So the work you put on the page has to make you laugh every time you read it. That sounds impossible. It's not, but this is really, really hard. And so, anything that's good, uh, you know, the the hard thing about being doing comedy in the Orville setting is you don't want to undermine the drama. You don't want the jokes to make you don't want the jokes to make the show silly. Um, you want it to be believable. Same thing with a Family Guy those good gags, those memorable gags take a lot of work. I mean, you're basically doing a little mini, mini show in that gag has beginning, middle and end, um, a payoff, a a concept to payoff. uh, you know, and some work great, some don't, but you're, you're working really hard. And then on top of that, the show has been on for so long that there's been so many things, uh, that have been parodied in those games already you don't want to repeat yourself and then on top of that uh when the show started there were a lot less networks everybody was watching the same tv show and movies now everyone's frame of reference is different uh you know with the sort of uh, the, the scattering uh and the niche programming um that we have you, to make a joke that that everybody gets mm-hmm. is much much harder yeah. In terms of referencing, in terms of referencing some bit of pop culture, so uh, the answer is Dan, no, it's all really hard. Anything good is hard. So I don't know if this was yours. But I, you know, when when I remember somebody said, to me, "What's your?" I'll take credit for it. Even if it's not
0: much. <laughs> what's your favorite Family Guy moment? They asked me, and I, it's the cutaway to the fake TV show of Touched by an Angel, where there's a little boy. So it says, you know, and now we got a touch by an angel. There's a little boy in a courtroom scene and the lawyer holds up a teddy bear and says, where did he touch you? And then there's a guy in the dock, obviously, who's got a halo and it's all very funny. That's my favourite one.
2: I-, I guess that's not yours because you took longer to get it. It took a minute to remember that one. It's very funny, I think. But, uh, uh, what's, are you asking what my favourite one was? Well, no, I was I was telling you mine, but what <laughs> do why don't you tell me your favourite? Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I don't know that, I, I, I'm going to be honest, I, I don't know that I have one, but I, I did, you know, uh, there was a joke in the Star Wars episode uh, that, I, I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but, but uh, and and Alex Sulkin, who wrote the script, wrote this joke, which I just thought was really funny, like during, uh, Peter is is in the Millennium Falcon shooting TIE Fighters, and he's humming the mu- Star Wars music. And I just love that joke. it's very small, but it's like it it's it's, it's, it's a, you know it's a very small moment. it's not the harshest joke and then you know there's some real incredible set pieces on that show uh all there was this episode where they all take uh ipecac, which makes people throw up and it's this extended vomiting scene, which I also think is very funny, so I have a a range of uh a range. And then the jokes that I pitched, probably the one I'm most proud of was, uh, uh, tar- this is as hard as finding, as making a comedy in Germany. And then it cuts to the end of the war and a German is saying how exciting is. When the war is over, we can make comedy and get comedies again. But uh, I want you to uh, get me on the phone with these writers and his assistants like, yeah, I'm not going to be able to do that. And <laughs> it's a Holocaust joke yeah
0: yeah no I, uh, oh yeah my God,
2: I can't believe we can't get any of these writers get the get their rates <laughs> on the phone it's like yeah you're not going to be able to do that and but <laughs> so, well, that was that was very proud so. look th- this podcast is not meant to be about success
0: or humor yeah I know what happened to all the failure <laughs> I got a little bit dis- I got distracted by by family guys so here, let's go back to the core point of this rejection so yeah you're a comedy writer, you're in a room, you spend, let's say, a couple of years with these people. It's all lots of making jokes. When you get fired from a, a room where you've been working with people with whom the whole relationship is about making jokes, and obviously, you know, making a show, when you get fired, is it is it hard to have a guy whose whole time you spent making them laugh, you sit down and they're like, right, thank you, we don't need you again?
2: Well, I mean, you probably saw it coming because you weren't making them yeah. um, laugh. That's the uh, the problem. Isn't you, every the? I've all, I've been fired. Um, I was fired once from Golden Girls, and uh, so I was hired by Golden Girls by one set of showrunners. It was interesting. There were four writers who ran that show for the first four years, and they hired me and my partner, and then they left. And then a new writer came in and it was very clear pretty quickly that we were not succeeding with him. So the fact that he fired us was not a surprise. Um, And then um, there was another, there was another show that I was on much later that I would have been fired from if it had got if it hadn't been canceled. So the show was canceled. So the writer never fired me, although he was planning to. Um and I knew that too that that was a strained relationship that that we we weren't getting along that he even though he did even though I was pitching a lot of stuff that was getting into scripts and uh, that that wasn't I also knew he he did not like me and uh um and that so so you know you see it coming I think you see it coming I I I I'm not I'm not saying everybody sees it coming but my, in my experience, when it wasn't working out, uh, it's almost always, yeah, i not surprised.
0: Uh, and presumably making a joke isn't the right reaction at that point because it's too late.
2: <laughs> oh, I don't know if that's going to turn it around. <laughs> uh, I want
1: to I want to I want to segue now that we're talking about, you know, a little bit more about some personal rejections into you know, this bigger question of of our guild and we this might get a bit technical, so I'm going to try to keep it not technical, but we've had a lot of um, writers come on now on this podcast and showrunners, show creators, high level screenwriters, and they're just saying the landscape is really hard. It's hard for them. It's hard for people at the bottom. It's hard for people in the middle and there is this idea that once you make it in Hollywood, you're going to have this amazing life. You're going to make a ton of money and you're going to do really well and what we're finding and of course what I've found in my own career and those that are around me is it's just it's it's a struggle. It really is. I mean, even when you're doing well, there's years in which you're not, and this is for every single writer we've interviewed where you don't know where your next job's going to come from. You don't know where your next paycheck is going to come from. And we are all sort of individually in a world of angst. As the president of all of our angst, uh-huh. you know, what 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 keeps you up at night about just the, the future of our guild and the future of our profession?
2: Um, What keeps me up at night? Um, You know, I think that the conglomeration of of, uh, the companies we work for into into a lesser and lesser number of companies makes it harder for writers. Uh, This agency campaign that we just took on was about making sure that our representatives were uh, properly fighting for us, had their financial interests aligned with ours, so that we at least had help, better help, fighting uh, for our income, better income, and and uh, I think though I do want to make sure that you know you want to make sure the guild has to make sure that writers are protected, and so and it gets harder and harder in in uh, in a in a landscape where there are only five companies, six large, six, you know, and who um, are doing a hiring. Uh, so, so that, that's, that's the hardest thing. And as, then, as these companies become self-contained siloed where they're the producer and also the the platform uh, and that it, the ability to sort of negotiate a better deal for yourself when everything is at this one place, that you're producing a show for Disney to air on Disney Plus or on uh, ABC or whatever, whatever else they own, um, makes it harder to have leverage to say, uh, I deserve this. Uh, having said that, uh, the Guild just did something pretty profound and showed the power of writers and how necessary writers are. Uh, to the process. I mean, that at the core of the agency campaign was a uh, was the idea that agents needed us more than we needed them, and we proved that. Uh, and that goes the same for the companies. I mean, not, not that they we they need us. Maybe not more than we need them, but they definitely need us. Uh, what I always say if is if the companies could actually get rid of writers, they would have a long time ago. Uh, they, they, they need us. Uh, the, the amount of money that you can make, that a company can make off of one television show, uh, created by one writer, uh, it, it is compelling to these studios, which is why they will never be out of the writer business. Um, so I, I think what, what really does keep me up at night is, is not the change in the landscape, but that, that writers don't lose uh, hope and don't lose a sense of their own value, and don't lose a sense of the power of their uh, union to work in solidarity to to make things better. But unfortunately, all the things, all these things require may require fights, some kind of fight in in the near or distant future uh, to make sure that uh, it isn't it isn't such a uphill battle to maintain a career as a writer. And I
1: think, you know, for the majority of the people that tune into our podcast, they 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 understand the nuances of all of this. But for those who don't, you know, the Guild took on the agencies in a battle that took two years. And it was not only the agencies which had a ton of power, but it was the, the uh, private equity firms which owned some of these agencies and billions and billions of dollars were at stake. And at the beginning of all of this a lot of people didn't think that the guild would have the stomach to win and and david goodman being the president of the guild was often the face of this battle or at least the name on on this battle and of this battle and uh which kind of brings me to the second question because we we as a guild did win we held together and as of a few weeks ago the last agency signed and we're all you know that they were putting this battle behind us we're all re-signing with our agencies and moving forward and the needs of the members and their agencies are hopefully more closely aligned but i saw a tweet i think by jose molina who said something about you know david led this and i'm not going i'm not quoting it 100% accurately but the i the gist behind it was that you know has your relationship with the agencies or your personal agent soured because you were you know the name on the banner as we all marched into battle
2: well i mean i didn't go back to my old agent so uh that might be true and jose's tweet was very funny i thought cuz basically he was saying all the agents hate him he, he's ruined his career for us, what a hero. And he, was, he wasn't trying to be funny, he was being supportive but I thought it was very funny. And um, uh, I don't, I think again, uh, individual agents uh, have reached out to me, uh, uh, an agency reached out to me wanting to represent me. Uh, uh, so I, you know, they, uh, it, I don't, I, I think that perhaps there may be some hard feelings uh at some of the high levels of these agencies towards me because i've affected how much money they're making um by taking away the very lucrative packaging fees but i got a as soon as wme signed i got a really nice email from a uh, a pretty pretty uh, senior agent at wme saying david hey i just want to say i'm ready to get back to work i'm really excited you guys made a deal that was really sweet um and i think I'm fortunate in that um, agents recognize I might be running a show again one day and I might be in a position to hire their clients. And so they're smart enough to know I'm not going to burn a bridge with David Goodman uh, because I might want him – I don't want him mad at me and and blackballing my clients. I would never do that, honestly. I mean that's the whole weird thing about this whole thing is – uh, I just want to work. Uh, I'm not holding grudges against agents. They may be holding grudges against me. They may try to impede my ability to work. I don't know. I, I, but I don't think they have. I don't think they have the time for it. They got to get to work and get their clients work. So I, I don't. I, I don't see. I'm not sure that Jose's tweet is right. That they that they're all looking to destroy me. I, but I think my picture is on some dartboards. Uh, but otherwise, I don't. I don't know that. I don't know that they're thinking about me anymore at all. I think yeah, let's just get to work. Let's just make money.
0: One of the things we talk about with a lot of guests is this whole concept that when you get rejected for whatever reason, the, the the different reasons for getting rejected are incredibly wide and varied, from you know people getting fired to things changing and then and you never really find out why from your point of view now if you get rejected from something that you've pitched or a job that you're up for will is there a tiny part of you that thinks i wonder if this will be because of what i did or actually is it a great get out you can you know you can say to your you can say to your family oh no my work my work was brilliant but it's just this agency thing that's holding me back now
2: (laughs) well i mean that you put the thought in my head. That's a good excuse to have when I fail. Um, I think, um, no, I, I think I take it. I think like all writers, I take it completely personally. Uh, I, I, I pitch something and they don't buy it. I, I just feel like a failure. I feel like, you know, I don't feel like, um, you know, part of the other thing too, is that throughout this agency, campaign the buyers, the studios reached out to me quietly and expressed support. They didn't go public because they didn't want to piss off agents but some major major people at major studios uh, called me and said hey keep going and um, we're with you we've tried to take this on and we we didn't succeed and you know I appreciate that because what it told me was even I would have preferred if they were public about it, but what it told me is, at least privately, they they were also telling me, "I'll work again." <laughs> so that was, since they're the hirers. So, um, but no, I, I I mean I I've pitched a couple of things that I haven't sold in the last few months uh, that I think um, kind of crushed me that I didn't sell them because I liked these, both these projects a lot. Um, but you know, you pick yourself up and you move on and I'm about to, you know, try and sell some more stuff, but you know, it's all, it all, I, my experience of it is always like, I think similar to a lot of writers, which is God, I suck.
1: So it shows you how hard this industry is where we have, again, a number of people on and they're all. pitched and we didn't sell it and we're like at all levels people are rich there's there's no no matter what level you're coming in at you're going to have a rejection and sometimes the higher up you go the harder those rejections are because the bigger the prize is at the end and you're really close to this big thing and you just don't get it
2: well i i mean i had sort of the the most crushing rejection in that i produced a complete television series 13 episodes that has never aired uh and yeah yeah i'm looking at the expression on dad's face and he's like what how is that even possible yeah and um it was an animated comedy for fox uh it was you know went through a long development process to get it picked up i had a lot of support at uh the mid-level at the of the execs at fox the heads of comedy at fox were very supportive of it and i did it with another writer named very talented guy was also the lead actor in it. And finally the the network president picked it up and I did everything I could to get him to pick it up. I called every important person I knew to call him. Like I did everything I could. He picked it up. He ordered it to series. Uh, and, you know, it was, a, it was an animated cop show called Murder Police. And um, it was picked up because animation is a long lead time. Uh, it was picked up in December for the following September. Uh, so it would be on, so we were in production. And while we were in production, and this was one of the reasons it contributed to not airing uh, the, the network pilot season proceeded and, and the, the network in April. So now we've been in production on our show for three or four months and animation again takes a long time, but it was going well. The scripts were succeeding with the network and they weren't getting a lot of notes, getting some notes, but they were very supportive. And then in April or May, uh, Fox picks up uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Uh, great show, cop comedy. Really one of the first cop comedies in a while, and so now Fox had two cop comedies, and one of them had lots of stars in it, and came from uh, very talented writers, friends of mine, Mike Sure and and uh, and Dan Gore. They are they are very, super talented and came. Great auspices—they've been on the office, and there was my show, Murder Police, which I did, was doing with Jason, and I came off Family Guy, but I wasn't quite at their league. So they—they—they they, they had this great pilot, this great show, and suddenly uh, I'm not getting a lot of notes from the network, but I'm still finishing the show, and and they just decided not to air it. The head of the network just decided, you know what, I'm not—I'm not, I'm not going to air this because, from what I understand, uh, he was uh, nervous that because I didn't have any stars in the show, it was gonna be a very hard show to promote and a very hard show to get people to watch. And, and that would have cost him a lot of money out of his promotion budget to get people to watch it. We finished the show. I have 13 episodes of this show finished. And I know maybe some of your listeners are thinking, oh, it must be terrible. And I just wanna to say to them, fuck you. It's, it's good, it's a good show. <laughs> It, but even if it's the worst show ever, there's like – there's all these streaming platforms. Why isn't it on? I go back to the studio network at the beginning of COVID. I went back to the head of Fox. I said, hey, in a in a box in the lunchroom, there's 10, 13 episodes of this show. Just take them out. You can sell them. They're finished. Um, and they're, I always get a very nice response back. Yes, we're looking into it. And, you know, this – but this is – so, so – it, it still wrangles me because it's, one, I really do think it's a good show. Had great stars in it. Jake Lynch is in it. Um, uh, actor Sean McBride. Uh, Will Sasso, who's a very funny comedian, uh, was in it. And then Jason, who co-created it with me, plays the lead. And uh, Justina Machado, who's on One Day at a Time. Like, very good, great, funny actors. Phil Amar, who'd been on Futurama. and uh, You know, just really talented Funny people, great animation done by great animators and no one's seen it.
1: Dan, Dan just just for a little bit of color, cause you'll like the story. I was watching my episode of Hawaii Five-O with Dan at his house when I was still back in Los Angeles and Shy was on our show as well. Right. And he ad-libbed the line turn around and face the fruit salad. It was a Thanksgiving episode and he was someone, he was arresting someone at the buffet and Dan's like, that's a great line. That's really funny. I'm like, I wish I wrote it. He just said it on the day and it's still probably the funniest episode uh, line in the episode. So I'm a fan of it. I, no.
2: I would talk about Hawaii 5 like uh, when, cause he was doing it while he was doing our show and, and he had lived in his audition. He had lived the line that we put in the pilot.
1: Now, not I mean we don't always love the ad libbing, but he happens to be a writer and a talented one. And his ad libs, he's just he can handle really tough dialogue and make it really good. So there was a there was an appreciation for that line. I wish I wrote it. I got credit for it later. And and I didn't. And I will say that publicly, I did not write that line.
2: From it, you know, and I know this is like a, but you you're gonna you're gonna remember that the next time you write a script. You're gonna look for those opportunities. How can I add some character color to this guy, turn around and face right? Yes.
1: Oh, I, oh, for sure. It's, and it taught me, you know, he just watching those performers say your lines teaches you so much about what works and what doesn't work. I have, you know, before, before we kind of come to our ending, I have a, you know, a question about dead. I haven't
2: talked about failure nearly enough. I mean, yeah, we
1: can keep going. We'll go for We can have a two, a two episode special, but I do, I do, Uh, you know, do you have any thoughts in this industry's, you know, the way that they do move beyond, like if you sell a pilot and then it, they don't, there maybe have another pilot that's too close and it was an amazing script. And they're like, okay, we're going to make this supernatural thing and not this supernatural thing. And then that pilot's dead. I mean, like they've decided that because they it, they didn't go forward, they're not going to give it a try. And we all have these sort of dead pilots and works that we love that we can't go back to. And, and maybe just now we, uh, you know, we've had some people on who have had shows that have had second lives because of streaming that is maybe beginning to just change is, you know, what are your thoughts about th- about this whole policy of like, once something's dead, it's dead and you can't well, go back I, to it?
2: I mean, I don't know that it's a policy. I think it's important. It's always important as a writer to remember who who you're dealing with in this business, that the executives... So for instance, the reason Murder Police, just as an example, has never been on again, that even though the head of that network left the network, his successors talked for a minute about putting Murder Police back on and then didn't, probably with the, given the events of... Of George Floyd, I'm probably lucky that I don't have a show called Murder Police on the air. But but the the uh, the the issue is the execs uh, realize you know when, when you're developing a show um, that the execs realize that um, they're invested in its success. They're not writing it. They're not making it. But they're they're investing in its success and then when it fails that's their failure too so you're asking them to put aside their failure and risk failure again on the thing they just failed with so you it, i think that empathy is important because yeah. uh execs you know are, have tough jobs it's tough as an exec to prove your value and you prove your value by having developing things that succeed. If you keep going back to a to a pilot that failed, that didn't get picked up, that your boss didn't pick up, and you go to your boss again and say, well, you know, Noah's script's really good. Could we look at this again? That exec is putting themselves at a lot of risk of their own job. And I think that empathy is important. Uh, you know, so, and I think that's the main reason that people don't go back to things is that execs don't want. And that's what happened again with murder police was the, the network exec who, who left his successors were like, why are we going to risk looking like risk a failure with this? It's better to invest in something new that can be completely ours. Because if it fails, if my show failed with us, with the successor, then they're, there, then the guy who left is right. It was was not worth the time. It wasn't worth the investment. So that's why I think it's really, we lose sight of that. We lose sight as writers because we do create and we do put all of our, our ourselves in these things. We lose sight of the fact that execs do too. They're putting themselves, their jobs on the line. And when it fails, it's like, I got to step away from this now. I, I'm, it's It's not going to help me to stay with that. Now, having said that, writers have the option of going back to it themselves and pushing it on other people. And you've seen that. To me, the best story is... The best story of that is uh, uh, Mad Men. Uh, So Matt Weiner is a writer. He's a writer on sitcoms. He doesn't really want to be on sitcoms. He writes the Mad Men spec pilot. That spec pilot gets him on The Sopranos, that script. His agent won't, at the time, his agent then wouldn't send it. So Matt found a way to get it to The Sopranos. David Chase hires him. He's on The Sopranos for a number of years. At the end of it, now Matt wants to make Mad Men. David Chase, I believe, tried to shepherd Mad Men and HBO wasn't interested. So Matt ends up selling it to AMC there's there's the life in that script because the script it's a great script and it's obviously i'm a huge fan of that show and it shows he wasn't going to give up so it's up to the writer not to give up if, if you're really sure about it so
0: you're almost giving advice now which is good because our last question is <laughs> if you could give one piece of advice for somebody entering your industry and I guess for your industry, let's go for comedy writer rather than guild president. Um, if you could give
2: one piece of advice, what would it be? Don't. Uh, I need work. I don't need other people looking for work too. I, I, uh, that's that's terrible. I, <laughs> that's not the advice I give. I. This is the advice I always give. Is it's it's actually advice I've stolen from Steve Martin, who wrote. Uh, somewhere be so good they can't ignore you uh that's your only choice your only choice in a creative field is if you're looking to somebody else to make you famous or looking for someone else to make your career that can happen but it's much more likely that you're going to succeed if you've put everything you can into whatever it is you're trying to do Um, you know, I, I think, and especially goes for comedy writers, it's, you know, you write that script, the script needs to make you laugh every time you read it. It's not, it sounds impossible because, well, I know all the jokes, not impossible, but it's really, really hard. Um, uh, that separates the successes from, a lot of the successes from people who don't succeed. Um, same thing goes for drama writing. If you're writing a script that's a horror script, it should scare you. You're the only audience. you right now. You're the only person reading the script. It better scare you. If it's a, if it's supposed to be sad, it better make you cry. It all the things that drama is supposed to do. The script should affect you personally. And so, uh, that's a that's that's the writing that's the writing advice. And I think it's, you know, I definitely have that experience with the scripts that I've written that I love. Is that I go back and I I find myself laughing. Not flying but i have that involuntary oh that's what you know laughter and and i assume writers who write other things have that the experience too of being scared or sad or uh romantic
0: or whatever yeah very good so look david goodman producer of murder police and, <laughs> and other projects thank you very much for being part of our podcast uh, it was my pleasure
1: and and I want to thank you not only for coming on, but I want to take the second to thank you for all you did for the guild. It was it was tremendous, and I'm super uh, grateful.
2: Well, thank you, Noah. And and you know I, I say it and I mean it. The members like you and and who supported this this action and supported me, I always felt it, and uh, and I know the leadership did too. And we wouldn't have succeeded without uh, the members and members like you. So thank you. And I'm not a member of the
0: guild, but thank you for the comedy that you wrote in Family Guy and um, and Orville, and also for like keeping people like Noah happy. <laughs> All right, that's a wrap on this episode.
1: If you want to leave us any feedback, go to hollywoodabyss.com.
0: And if you'd like to subscribe, we won't stop you. And if you want to leave a review, we certainly won't stop you. In fact, we'll be incredibly grateful. And we have a couple of thank yous before we go completely. We want to
1: thank James Launch for the intro and outro music. We want to thank both our wives who allowed us to hide in our respective basements while we record all of these interviews.
0: And if you want to find us on Twitter and join in the conversation, I'm at at Dan Rutstein and Noah is at N Ebslin. Please come and find us. Please say hello. And if you really want to, please give Noah a job. Yes, I am looking for a job of any sort. I can polish
1: shoes. I can write copy Uh, i can even be in a writer's room so if that's the case feel free to reach out
0: but you definitely can't podcast
1: i definitely this is not the thing that i do well